Early in the 4th century AD, Christianity was facing one of its most serious challenges to date. At that time, especially in the area of Alexandria, uh, Alexandria Egypt, there was this man going around, a, a preacher going around, who was very pop- popular named Arius. He was going around and he was disrupting the church because he was teaching that Jesus was a created being. He denied the eternality of Christ. He taught that the Father and the Son were two separate beings. That's totally different, by the way, than being separate persons. He taught that they were two separate beings with two separate natures. Because of this heresy, brought before the Bishop of Alexandria. How awesome is this? The guy's name was Alexander, Bishop of Alexandria. He was questioned and excommunicated in 321 A.D. Writing up that statement, the notice of excommunication, was a young man at the age of 21 by the name of Athanasius. Even though he was excommunicated, uh, he went around. Uh, Alexandria, a lot of times, was a very, um, how to say it, a, a very riotous city in some aspects. And so he went around preaching his heresy and and collected quite a great crowd because the man was a very eloquent speaker, unlike me. True. He even spread this heresy um, by the means of the popular music in the day. He set his heresy to words, to music. Here it is. Here's his song. There was when he was not. There was when he was not. What does that mean? When the Father was, the Son was not. He was proclaiming there was a time when the Son, Jesus the Christ, did not exist. Now, Arius' teaching was known as Arianism, and it spread quickly throughout the church uh, and caused a great uh, disruption, great disputing amongst the Christians of the day. Seeing this, the Roman Emperor Constantine, wanting to end the conflict and produce unity in his empire, convened a council in Nicaea in 325 A.D., This council consisted of over 300 bishops from all over the Roman Empire. It must have been an amazing time that some 20 years earlier, the chief persecutor of the Christians was the Roman Empire. And now brought in to the the emperor's palace, this man greets them as brothers, some of them still bearing the scars from their persecution by the Romans. Again, at the council, attending with the bishop of Alexandria was very young and very short, Athanasius. Part of the reason why I like him, the shortness. Well, the council, after much deliberation, ruled decisively against Arianism, calling 
the teachings heretical and pronouncing an anathema on the teaching. Yet, one victory in battle does not, does not oftentimes end a war. Even though the council ruled against him, Arius continued to teach his beliefs anyway. He had friends who were powerful bishops, and these bishops allowed Arius to preach in their pulpits, to preach in their churches, and even supported him financially. And throughout this whole ordeal, Arius actually gained notoriety and visibility and a lot of sympathy and a lot of influence when forced into the role of an underdog. It seems like everybody loves the underdog. At about this time, a lot of uh, trusted friends of Constantine started going up to him and saying, you know, Arius really did get a bad deal. He's not a bad guy. I think he was mistreated. He really doesn't believe those things. And Constantine called Arius in, and after much deliberation, Constantine said, okay, I'll I'll let you back in. However, Constantine couldn't do this by himself. The Council of Nicaea, they actually said that to be let back into the church after an excommunication, it had to be from the church that excommunicated you. And However, at the age of 30, the young man, Athanasius, became the bishop of that church. And he was the most vocal opponent of Arius and his teaching. Now he's put with a dilemma. Constantine is the emperor, the most powerful man in the world, emperor of the Roman Empire. What will Athanasius do? He defied the emperor himself. He did not follow his orders because to accept an unrepentant Arius was to accept heresy in the church. Because of his stand, Athanasius was banished from the Roman Empire. He was exiled into what is now uh, modern-day northern Germany. In the next 45 years of his life, Athanasius was exiled on five separate occasions by four different emperors, spanning a a time of 17 years living as a fugitive, all because of his stance for the deity of Jesus Christ. And during this time, he, he did not take any time off He wrote uh, a lot of apologetic works condemning and showing the error of Arianism. Because of his faithfulness, the Arian doctrine had all but died out within a hundred years. Now, according to tradition, when it looked like the vast majority of the church was Arian, 
when he was in the very small minority, this man came up and said to Athanasius, Athanasius, it seems like the whole world is against you. Athanasius replied, then Athanasius is against the world. This statement became a famous proverb that was repeated for centuries in the Latin, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. Heading into 2016 and looking at the state of the Christian church in America, the churches in our community, the the churches that we have here, we need God to desperately raise up men and women and boys and girls like Athanasius. Athanasius took a bold and heroic stand for Christ in the face of great opposition. He considered the reproach of following Jesus Christ more important than the applause and admiration of men. Athanasius knew ultimately that the doctrine of the person of Christ is linked to the work of Christ, which is linked to the gospel of Christ. That's so important, I want to say it again. He knew that the person of Jesus Christ, you cannot separate that from his work, and you cannot separate the person and work from the gospel. To be an error on one point is to be an error on all three points. Today, there are many attacks being waged against the person and the work and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the sad reality in the world that we live in, and we expect it from unbelievers, but it's even more devastating and more sad when it comes from those who are professing evangelical Christians. So I give you two examples to make this point, that we need to be on our guard, that we need to be in this age very discerning. I give to you two examples of some of America's most popular preachers. It's hard today to name who's the most popular. If we would have went back a generation ago, it would have been Billy Graham. Nowadays, it seems like there's a a void. With my first example, I want to caution us. I'm not speaking badly about the man. I believe he's a brother in Christ. But I think he does have some lack of discernment in a few areas. Extremely popular preacher Example A would be Rick Warren. He has views believing that the Roman Catholic Church to be our true brothers in Christ. There's much evidence on this. He has made many statements regarding the Pope as the ultimate example of what a Christian is to be. 
And he's even gone as far to say for the Christian church, the Pope is our Pope, as if we are all under his authority. And yet, here's my concern. The Roman Catholic Church teaches a false gospel that says salvation is by faith. Hey, that's great. But salvation is also by works. They deny that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so ultimately, I think this ecumenicalism with uh, Protestants and Catholics has led to much confusion in the church. Should we evangelize Catholics or count them as our brothers? And we need doctrinal clarity on that. We really do. Second, I would say the second most popular preacher in America is Joel Osteen. And yet he has clearly stated in many cases that he does not preach about man's sin. He does not preach upon God's wrath. He treats the Bible like a buffet, choosing what things he wants to say and include in his message that will encourage, but anything that might discourage, he totally leaves out. He preaches a false gospel, which says that Jesus' death ultimately was to secure for you a better life here and now. More money, better health, better material blessings, more material blessings. In fact, you can go online, you can look at the transcripts that he has from the Larry King show in his interview. He he flat out denies the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He, He basically says there's more than one way to heaven. You don't have to believe in Christ to go to heaven is what he implies. What a sad thing that this is our ultimate examples of what a pastor and preacher should be. And as such, when we look now through the polls that are being conducted, those of professing Christians, I I don't give you the actual statistics because I, I looked into about 12 of them. I don't know which ones to believe. But I will share with you my findings. The majority of self professing Christians have bought into and believe in the false prosperity gospel. The majority of Christians, uh, professing Christians, have now bought in and believe in a works-based salvation. The vast majority of professing Christians believe now that there are many different religions that can get you to heaven. My friends, those are our neighbors. We truly are living in perilous times. So as we head into 2016, I believe God himself is commanding us to put on the full armor of God and to contend for the faith that has once and for all been delivered to the saints. To do this, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We will be reading verses 6 through 10. Galatians chapter 1, 
verses 6 through 10. And in this text, we will see five actions that we are to employ in the defense of the gospel. Five actions to employ in the defense of the gospel. The living word of God reads, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different one, but there are some who trouble you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. Five actions we are to employ in the defense of the gospel. Action point number one. We are to be astonished at gospel departure. We are to be astonished. It's pretty clear from the text, is it not, in verse 6? I am astonished. He was, Paul was astonished that the believers in Galatia were so soon, so quickly departing from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for astonish, themuzo, is an extremely strong word, an extremely powerful word in the Greek language. To put it this way, Paul was surprised. He was stunned. He was shocked, amazed, overwhelmed, bewildered, appalled, baffled, startled, dumbfounded. To put it in today's vernacular, Paul is saying to the Galatians, you blow my mind. This is such a strong word that it is often connected to the response that people had when witnessing the miracles of Jesus. After seeing Jesus calm the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee, by the power of his word, the disciples in the same boat with him, it is written in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, were they amuso. They were astonished, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? After seeing Jesus healing a paralytic man, a man lowered down through the roof, on a bed, he could not move at all. And seeing Jesus perfectly heal this man, this man get up, take his mat, and walk home. It says that the crowd who saw it were Theomuzo. 
translated here as they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This response, Theamuzo, is also given in, re- in regards to Jesus cursing a fig tree and the disciples seeing it wither away. It is also given to the response of uh, the disciples seeing Jesus walking on the water. It was given as a response. It's the word choice that is given when Jesus healed a demon-possessed boy, casting out the demon. It is the response that Peter himself had, according to Luke 24, 12, of seeing the empty tomb. It is the response that the disciples had in that house when the resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus Christ was standing there before them and they ate a meal with them. It's as if Paul is saying this. If I was there and I saw those miracles that Jesus was performing and the shock and the awe and the amazement, the the same amazement I would feel in seeing that. If I was to put it on this end of the scale and to see your departure on the gospel on this end, it would be balanced out. I can't believe it. How can this be? Secondly, I think we see Paul's astonishment in not only his word choice here, but also from his departure from his customary habits in writing the gospel. In his epistles, in his letters, I want to give you two examples of this. Paul, in this case, actually takes the pen in hand and he personally writes the whole letter to the Galatians. According to the scripture, we know of at least two of Paul's secretaries. His normal practice would be to uh, sit down and dictate his letters to a secretary who would then write it out. And yet, Paul states in Galatians chapter 6, verse 11, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. The Galatians' gospel departure was so shocking and so spiritually dangerous in the mind of Paul that he did not have a second to waste. He could not wait and send for a secretary and wait for him to come. And so he grabs the pen in his own hand because he cares so much about the gospel and he cares so much about the believers there in Galatia that he has to write it there on the spot. That departure does show his amazement, his departure from his customary habit. Another habit that he breaks is this. This shows his amazement that he actually departs from, Paul departs from his customary introduction that he writes by. And so when you read Paul's letters, normally this would be how he would do it. He would express, first of all, uh, he would introduce himself and his uh, companions that were with him. 
Secondly, he would then give a blessing to the recipients of his letter. Usually the, the typical blessing is uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Moving on from that, he would give thanks to them. Give thanks for what God was doing in the lives of these believers. And yet when you look at Galatians, there is a shocking and startling omission. Paul does not give thanks to them. Why? Paul is not thankful. He's not thankful for their abandonment of the gospel. How could he be thankful for the thing that dishonors Christ? And so with shocking words and fiery zeal, Paul must rebuke their faithlessness. May I say here at this point that we too, like Paul, need to be astonished at this present hour. All too often, we're so much in the world and the world influences us so much that we harden our hearts and we cease being shocked. We almost expect Christians to act like heretics. Our minds need to be so filled and renewed with the Scriptures that any departure from the Scriptures should stun us. But let us consider the second point of the text. Action point number two. We need to realize the implications of gospel departure. We need to realize the implications of a departure from the gospel. Picking up in verse 6, look what Paul writes. You are so quickly deserting Him, deserting God, God who called you in the grace of Christ. Notice the implication that Paul makes. To depart from the gospel is to depart from God Himself. They're connected. If you preach a false gospel, then you proclaim a false Christ. The gospel, while being a set of theological facts about the person and work of Jesus Christ and how we may personally appropriate the work of Christ to our own lives by faith, it has far more deep theological implications. To add to or to subtract from the gospel is to malign and is to hold in contempt the very person and work of God. It's the hold court in your heart and put God on trial. It's awful. And so in doing this, many proclaiming, professing Christians depart from the one true God and thus fashion an idolatrous image of God in their own minds. They worship a false Jesus, not the Jesus proclaimed in the Scriptures. 
Now looking at the text again. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. Look at the word deserting. It's the Greek word metatithemi. It means to change, to transfer, to, to turn back, to change the place of. This word was commonly used in the Greek language to speak about an actions of a soldier abandoning his post and going AWOL. It's spiritual treason. And Paul is saying to the Galatians that they were acting like a spiritual Benedict Arnold. Or probably more likely, they were acting just like Judas Iscariot. Those are strong words, and I think it's best and helpful to hear what John Calvin actually commented on this verse as a counterbalance. He says this, by using the present tense, deserting, Paul appears to say that they were only in the act of falling, as if Paul had said, I do not yet say that ye have been removed, for then it would be more difficult to return to the right path. But now, at the critical moment, do not advance a single step further, but instantly retreat back from where you came. He is basically saying this. He's not accusing the Galatian believers of losing their salvation. But they've turned their back on God and are following sin. And it is what he is saying here is that the Apostle Paul is saying to them, you need to stop in your tracks right now and to repent. and Return back to your first love. Notice again from the text that in deserting the gospel, they were actually deserting the person of God, as we've seen there, but they were also thus leaving and deserting the work of God. Yes, they were deserting Him, deserting God. That's the leaving of the person, but here's the work. God who called you. They were leaving their calling. They were turning away from their calling that God had on their lives. Not only that, if we continue further, they were not only abandoning and deserting their calling, but how did God call? In the grace of Christ. That's God's work, His grace. Given to sinners. To depart from the gospel is to become ungrateful to God's work of grace through Jesus, His Son. Every action, every thought, 
every deed, every heart motive that is not aligned with the true gospel message is to hate and despise God's grace. To summarize, to depart from the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone, is to depart from God himself and to hold with great hatred his amazing grace. We must realize those implications. The seriousness of them. Action point number three. We need to embrace the exclusivity of the gospel message. We need to embrace the exclusivity of the gospel. We see this at the end of verse 6 and verse 7. You are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Besides departing from God, the Galatians were turning to a different gospel. As if there is more than one gospel. The Greek word here for different is the word heteros. It literally means another of a completely different kind. And so, we see this in our normal language. We use it. We get into uh, like the prefix of our own word heterosexual. What does that mean? It means to be attracted to one of a totally different gender. Totally different. And so he's saying, ultimately, there's, there's not just a little bit of difference between the gospel that the Galatians had accepted here and the true gospel. No, they're totally mutually exclusive, like water and oil. They cannot mix. And the only other place in the New Testament where this word heteros is used is actually found in Acts chapter 2, verse 20 where it is used to describe the prophecy of Joel. The prophecy of Joel, where the sun would be turned into darkness. And again, you could see that complete opposite uh, is being pressed forward with this word heteros. We think of the sun, the last thing we think of is darkness. We think radiant light. So bright that, that to even stare at it would damage our eyes. And this change from the sun becoming into darkness, the polar complete opposite. Luke chose to use the word heteros. What Paul is saying is this. 
the new teachings that was being proliferated throughout Galatia about Jesus and the way of salvation was not the gospel. It was not good news at all. It was bad news. Complete opposite. Yet we must ask in our minds, what was this different gospel then? What was it that was so bad? What made it so polar opposite? What was being preached in Galatia? Another question that we need to ask and answer is this. Who were the people that were preaching this different gospel to the Galatians? Distorting the true gospel of Christ. Well, the people going around spreading this different gospel was a group known as the Judaizers. Think of them as Paul's arch nemesis. The Judaizers plagued the early church. They sought to combine elements of Christianity and combine it with Pharisaical Judaism, trying to mesh the two together. So the Judaizers, they claimed to be Christian. They claimed that their doctrine was very orthodox. They even claimed that the death of Jesus on the cross had value to save. They claimed that Jesus was Messiah and Lord. They basically claimed to believe all the other truths that Christians believe. And it looks good right there. And yet... The Judaizers actually taught this. They taught that they improved the gospel by adding to it the requirements of the Old Testament ceremonial law as a binding requirement for salvation. So they taught that to be saved, you must believe upon Jesus and be circumcised. You must believe upon Jesus and keep the Old Testament dietary laws. You need to... uh, have faith in Jesus and keep the Ten Commandments in order to be saved. Here's the plain fact. Anything added to grace destroys it just as surely as does anything that is taken away from grace. When law, even something as good as God's own law, is added to grace, His grace ceases to become grace at all. We see this excellently displayed in Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Paul writes there, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. It's no longer on works. And notice what he says after that. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In salvation, we cannot combine grace with works. And that is what the Judaizers were doing. So who are today's modern Judaizers? 
What's the same old heresy that's just been repackaged in, for today's generation? Let me give you a list and explain. It's not exhaustive. I've already mentioned this before, but how about the Roman Catholic Church believing that faith and works are required for salvation? And so they preach faith plus taking the mass, faith and having the treasury of merit applied to you, faith and working out your own punishment and purgatory, faith and the intercession of Mary, faith and buying indulgences, faith and prayers to the saints. They just couldn't leave it at faith alone. Sad. Secondly, how about another modern-day Judaizer? How about the Seventh-day Adventists? They teach in their official doctrine that Jesus had to perform an additional work of atonement in heaven. How serious is that? It denies the sufficiency and the finished work of the cross. It's to hold the cross in contempt. They place the prophecies of Ellen G. White on equal authority as the scriptures themselves. Thus, they deny the doctrine of sola scriptura. They literally believe that those who are saved are those who worship on Saturday. If you read their official statement, their beliefs on this concerning the book of Revelation, they literally say this, the professing Christians who worship on Sunday are the ones who take the mark of the beast in Revelation. They also say to be saved, you have to follow some of the Old Testament dietary laws. Or how about the Church of Christ? They believe that faith and the work of baptism is necessary in order to be saved. That a person cannot be saved unless they are first baptized. Instead of keeping to the traditional Christian interpretation that no, once you are saved, your baptism is a profession of the faith and the trust into entering into the new covenant that you have with God. They deny that though and say, no, you must do that to be saved. If you don't, you're not saved. So they add to faith the work of baptism. Or we can put the Jehovah Witnesses out there as an example. If you want to see an example of modern-day Arians, they too deny the deity of Christ. They believe Jesus was a created being. They teach in order to be saved, you must keep the whole law. And they go much further than God's laws. They say, in order to be saved, you cannot smoke. In order to be saved, you can't have anything that is even closely resembling gambling. Even to enter a raffle, they would say, would be to deny uh, salvation. They teach in order to be saved, you must become a member of the Watchtower Society. And they teach in order to be saved, you must proselytize or evangelize others in their faith. Isn't that weird? I mean, I'm shocked. I mean, 
I, I would, just out of pure logic, that's insane. You mean the people going out in the nice suits, knocking on my door on a Saturday morning, they're trying to earn their salvation? Yeah. They believe unless you do that, you can't be saved. You must do that first before you're saved. How about, as an example, the church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. They, too, deny the eternality of Christ. They believe that the teachings of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young are more authoritative than the Bible. They believe that baptism only by their church is the only way to be saved. And they mix faith with works besides just even teaching a different Jesus. Well, there's five, and I'm going to add one more. The only reason I mention this, because it's so crazy and strange, but there's so many people in the academic world, and now pastors actually saying that this religion and Christianity worship the same God. Another Judaizer, Islam. They deny the deity of Christ. They just consider him a prophet. In fact, the claim that Jesus is God to one who is very steeped in Islamic um, doctrine is to their ears the most blasphemous thing that you could say. They teach that the Quran is the inerrant word of God, not the Bible. They teach that heaven is only achieved by good works alone. And so you, you can do this in one of two ways. You can either keep all the laws in the Quran, but if you can't do that, then you need to go and die as a martyr in a jihad. That's their works. Getting back to the point, in this day of widespread relativism, pluralism, where we almost think that there's many different ways of salvation, we must unashamedly and boldly confront the error with the truth, but we need to do this humbly, we need to do this graciously, we need to do it in love. If we capitulate if we capitulate by keeping our mouths shut. A lot of times I think we do this so that we will not be classified as intolerant by others. But if we capitulate and we keep our mouths shut, we're only proving at that moment to be ashamed of the true gospel. Action point number four. You and I, we need to tremble at the consequence of gospel departure. We need to tremble at the consequences of gospel departure. Sometimes we don't connect the dots. And it should terrify us.
Look at verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Startling statement. And Paul is wanting to get his point across so, so clearly that he presents a hypothetical situation to make his point. Even if we, he says, now that would refer to Paul and his companions like Barnabas or, or Luke or Timothy or Silas. Or maybe he uses the word we to refer to himself as an apostle and along with all the other apostles. If we or even an angel from heaven. Maybe Michael, Gabriel, one of the archangels, one of the cherubim, one of the seraphim. If we should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you before, let him be accursed. Now Paul his companions, the other apostles, any of the elect holy angels will never depart from the gospel. They'll never preach a different gospel. But he's showing the seriousness of it, the saying this, that even my stance and my position as an apostle does not exclude me from this. If I were to preach to you a different gospel, I am to be accursed. This word accursed in the Greek language is anathema. It means something devoted, set aside and devoted to destruction. In fact, it's used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And speaking of the city of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Why? The city of Jericho was to be totally devoted to to destruction. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every infant, every animal was to be killed. With one exception. Rahab. Because she turned and believed in God. Paul is saying ultimately that every false teacher who proclaims a different gospel is to be assigned to the fiery flames of hell. They should go to hell before they take anybody else there with them. There's no room for neutrality here. There's no room for passivity here. It is time for the man of God to proclaim the mind of God. If the gospel Paul preaches is true, then the glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation of man are at stake. And so it's no, it's not too strong of a word. I can't think of a more evil thing than helping somebody go to hell. Those who spread a false works-based 
gospel contribute to the condemnation of lost souls who follow their message? It's so serious that Jesus said himself in Matthew 18, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a giant millstone hung around his neck and cast into the depths of the sea. Now, if this wasn't enough, I mean, that's just verse 8. It's like Paul reloads. I'm not done yet. You want to come back for more? I think he does this really to show the absolute seriousness. No, he just didn't lose his temper. It is that serious. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching, and now he, notice he uses the present tense, is preaching, meaning that this was an ongoing crisis in Galatia. As Paul was writing this, this false gospel was continuing to be spread. Preaching to you a different gospel, contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema. My dear friends, how can we sit idly by? How can we not absolutely tremble that many of our friends any of our neighbors, family members, believe in a different gospel. Out of a love for sinners, the same love that we should have because Jesus himself loves sinners, should we not beg and plead with them to come to Christ by faith and be reconciled to God? Action point number five. As time is slipping away. And Paul here gets down to the bottom line. If there is anything I want you to hear, it's... it's this point. Action point number five. You and I are to only seek God's approval. Not man. Only God. We're to live for an audience of one. He says, for now am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not, I could not be a slave of Christ. Every ounce of of Paul's life was directed towards the glory of Jesus Christ and not towards any approval, any admiration of man. He would have done the same things whether there was a large crowd there or if there was nobody there. Why he was doing it for God. Paul would put it this way If you please God, if you please God, it does not matter who you displease. But 
If you displease God, it does not matter whom you please. This is what God is pressing upon the hearts of the Galatians. And by His grace, I hope that He is pressing upon our hearts here this morning. The bottom line is this. Paul would say, I was elected by God. I was chosen by God. I was called by God, set apart by God, saved by God, redeemed by God, commissioned by God, instructed by God, appointed by God, sanctified by God, and one day I'll be glorified by God. Why on earth would I suddenly now try to please man? We live in a time not unlike the first century when the gospel is under constant assault. Our feet must be firmly planted upon this solid ground that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Therefore, we must take the gospel message to the ends of the earth to those who are perishing. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the only way of salvation. No one else has been born of a virgin. No one else has lived a sinless and perfect life. No one else can give to me His righteousness. No one else has died in my place, bearing my sins and carrying them far away. No one else has suffered the wrath of God, deserving me in my place upon that cross. No one else has appeased God's perfect, righteous anger towards me. No one else has reconciled me to a holy God. No one else has redeemed me out of the slave market of sin. No one else has washed my sins away. No one else has been raised from the dead for my justification. No one else has seated me in heavenly places. No one else has presented me before the Father's throne. Perfect. There is only one who is the champion of our salvation, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. We must strive to please Him. In conclusion, how do we end this message? There's many different ways. How about we end it where we started off this morning? With our scripture reading. I invite you to turn over to 1 John chapter 2. Verses 12 through 17. And by the mercy and grace of God, let us hear again with fresh ears the words of our Lord, the words that God speaks personally to our souls this morning. 1 John 2, beginning in verse 12. I am writing... To you, little children. Why? Your sins are forgiven for the sake of God's name. 
I'm writing to you, fathers. Why? Because you know Him. Him, God, who's from the beginning. You know Him. You don't just know of Him. You are personally and intimately connected to God. I'm writing to you, young men. Because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children. Why? Because even though you are young children, you know the Father. I write to you, fathers. Why? Because you know Him. Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young man. Because you are strong, the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Just like Athanasius, right? Strong. God's word at home in him. Overcoming every evil. What does God require of us? Verse 15. What's his command? Do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions. It is not from the Father. It's from the world. Now some comfort. The world is passing away. It's going to soon be gone along with all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever.